There's a very calming aspect of that hymn. Knowing that we can be still in the Lord no matter what comes our way, no matter who is against us, no matter what the holidays may bring with brokenness all around, broken relationships, broken families, lost sinners. All we have is Christ, and Christ is all we need. I'm going to read a little bit from Charles Spurgeon this morning called Gethsemane. Before we step into our study in the garden from John chapter 18. The text he cites is Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Few had fellowship with the sorrows of Gethsemane. The majority of the disciples were not there. They were not sufficiently advanced in grace to be admitted to behold the mysteries of the agony. Occupied with the Passover feast at their own houses, they represent the many who live upon the letter but are mere babes and sucklings as to the spirit of the gospel. The walls of Gethsemane fitly typify that weakness and grace which effectually shuts in the deep marvels of communion from gaze of ordinary believers. To twelve, nay, to eleven only, was the privilege given to enter Gethsemane and see this great sight. Out of the eleven, eight were left at some distance. They had fellowship, but not of that intimate sort to which the men greatly beloved are admitted. Only three highly favored ones who had been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and had witnessed a life-given miracle in the house of Jairus Only these could approach the veil of his mysterious sorrow. Within that veil, even these must not intrude. A stone's throw distance must be left between. He must tread the winepress alone, and of the people there must be none with him. Since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured, in the place of the olive press, when he was crushed beneath the upper and the nether millstone of the mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, says Spurgeon, and I agree, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you to Put your shoes off from your feet, for the place whereon we stand is holy ground. He says, I am neither Peter nor James nor John, and I am no Spurgeon, but one who would gladly, like them, drink of the Master's cup 
and be baptized with his baptism. I have hitherto advanced only so far as yonder band of eight, but there I have listened to the deep groanings of the man of sorrows. Some of you, my friends, may have learned far more than I, but you will not refuse to hear again the roarings of the many waters which strove to quench the love of the great husband of our souls. I pray for myself and strength once again. Oh God, I pray that you give me the Holy Spirit from on high, power from the Holy Spirit on high. God, that you would help me with every distraction, every attack. Lord, you know all things. God, that you would impress these things upon our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we read from Mark. Let us go and look again to Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 18. We consider faithfulness, not foolishness, our first point. Faithfulness, not foolishness. Looking again, verse 1. Jesus had spoken these words. He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, a lost not one. Now our text, first verse for us this morning, verse 10. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Okay, so Simon Peter was armed. And he was not alone in this. Luke tells us that they said, Lord, look here are two swords. And Jesus said to him, it is enough. Luke 22, verse 49, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So we see that someone asked the question. Now, these men carrying swords, neither one of them had concealed weapons permits. Now, from what one scholar said, he said it was unlawful to carry on a feast day. So I thought about that. But Luke tells us that the question was asked to Jesus if they should strike. And it seems, but before he could answer, Peter struck. So here they are. Lord, should we strike with a sword? Peter. With the, with the knife or with the sword. Peter was probably aiming for the head or for the jugular to kill the man. Malchus was quick enough 
spidey-like reflexes, to where he could dodge a fatal blow, but not quick enough to where his right ear was cut off. Now think of this. This is not a Vander Holyfield style here with the ear. This is the whole ear being cut off from the head. The right ear. Malchus's ear was gone. Blood most likely would be everywhere. Matthew informs us that Malchus was a slave of the high priest. So consider this scene and all of those soldiers that were there seeing this happen. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man standing there, the disciples who are around, Peter, and whoever asked the question, and then Peter striking out. Let's put it all together. Let's go to Matthew, because we need to look at the synoptics to put the complete picture together one more time. Go to Matthew chapter 26, then I will read for us Luke 22. So we're just going to go to Matthew 26. We're going to look at this together. Verse, we'll just go to verse 51. Okay, Matthew 26, verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out, drew out his sword, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. This was not Jesus' way, by the the sword to cut off this man's ear? Or do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Yes, he could have. And yes, God the Father would have. But Jesus did not. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? So this was to take place in fulfillment of the scripture. What the Old Testament says will happen and will be fulfilled. And Jesus reminds us of that. He says this is why it's happening. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? We're reminded they had weapons. Remember, John tells us lanterns as well. Possibly thinking this this Jesus, whoever he was, he's going to flee. Swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place here. Jesus says this again. All of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples led or excuse me, left him and and fled. And then in Luke chapter 22, I'll just read this for us as we turn back to John in Luke Jesus says stop no more of this and he again says while I was with you daily in the temple did you you did not lay hands on me but this hour and the power of darkness are yours and we'll look at that too 
And here in John 18, verse 11, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And we also see in chapter 18 of John, verse 26, that this fact of the ear being, being cut off and who it was would come back to confront Peter later on. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, I came upon this late in the game, but the name Malchus means king, kingdom, or my king. Now, Peter cut off the ear of this man, and very shortly after, Peter would cut himself off from the king of kings by denying him three times. Now, we know Peter was restored because Christ restored him. But he denying Christ, the king of kings, he was cutting himself off. He was denying Christ. He did three times. Peter does the cutting. Think of it this way. Peter does the cutting, acting out in the flesh, not yielding to the Spirit of God, not following the Lord's guidance. Let us learn from that. Peter, we're going to see some lessons we can learn from Peter. Peter it goes with the sword, cuts off his ear. Later on, Peter, not being guided, not following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, denies Christ when confronted about, do you know the man? Acting out in the flesh. Several lessons, lessons we can learn from what Peter did. Well, first, we learn not to do what Peter did, obviously. Right? Not literally speaking with the knife and sword, but obviously speaking, we don't do that. But Peter acted in haste, impetuously, and caused harm to someone. He tried to kill him, likely. Acting out in haste. And look at the harm that was done. If we act that way, in anger or impetuously, physically, and harm someone like that? Think of the consequences. We must be spirit controlled. The Lord is not going to be there to heal someone on the spot as Malchus was if we were to harm someone. Very practical. But to think of physically or verbally. Biting our tongue, closing our mouth. Should I really say this, oh God? This is going to cause murder. Verbally. So we learn what not to do. Secondly, the folly of the flesh. Jesus had been explaining to the disciples what was going to take place. Teaching them God's plan. This was going to happen. This is what you must do. And Peter took matters into his own hands. None of us have ever done that, right? Thirdly, Peter had misplaced zeal. Poorly informed zeal. Listen to James' voice on this. Peter's zeal for Christ was not conditioned by knowledge, which was the, the outcome of his failure in the preceding hours 
of Christ's command to him to watch and pray. He did not do that. He had zeal, but poorly informed zeal. Told to watch and pray, he did not. He was courageous, but he was ignorant in many ways. Later, he would not even be courageous, for he would deny Christ before a servant. Peter failed, ultimately. Christ restored him, forgivenly. And so we see, if our zeal is not nurtured upon the knowledge of God, and the knowledge that Christ gives us, it is not strengthened, and it's not strengthened by Him, we have a problem. We want to have zeal from deep communion with Christ. The result, strength and knowledge from God. Peter had misplaced zeal, poorly informed zeal. Also, we learn that Jesus showed mercy even to his enemies. Even as they came to seize him, he had compassion on them. He supernaturally healed a man whose ear he had just had just been cut off. He met the immediate needs of his enemy in an emergency situation. I often thought about that. And I'm out evangelizing. And if someone who is a consistent mocker were to fall down on the floor and needed CPR, seriously, what I would do. Because I know this person is, will die and go to hell without Christ. The last thing the Lord did, the last thing he did with his hands before they were bound was to heal a man. For Peter, there was nothing to be gained by acting out in violence. Jesus fully intended to be arrested. Instead, Jesus said, stop, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus goes on to continue to protect Peter from Peter's own self and also from a force of men that Peter could not stand against. There's no way. Peter, another disciple with swords, and then you have all these soldiers with weapons. It's not going to go very well if, if the Lord were just to say, you're on your own here with this. They were outnumbered. Overwhelming advantage against them. But Jesus was determined to protect Peter. And Jesus was determined that the will of his father would be done. And nothing could stand in the way of that. Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So we learn from Peter, we ought to learn from Peter, and then we look at Jesus and how they responded. Faithfulness, not foolishness. Secondly, self-denying, not self-seeking. Self-denying, not self-seeking. The next verse, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the main focus here in this verse really is the cup. Or the magnitude of what the cup represents. To better understand this magnitude, we need to back up a little. 
The cup was previously mentioned by Jesus before entering into the garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 22, he says, Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We also find this in Mark chapter 10, verse 39. But before the, there was a mention of the cup in the garden and up to the garden, we find it several times in the Old Testament. We find in the Old Testament a contrast between a, a cup of judgment and then a cup of obedience or a cup of blessings, forgive me, a cup of blessing or salvation for obedience. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, Isaiah says to Jerusalem, Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. And then Psalm 11 and verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning, burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So we see the cup here as a negative sense, as a judgmental sense, as the wrath of God, the anger of God sense. This is the very cup that Jesus was speaking of in the garden when he prayed to the Father saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, O God. So we ask the question when we consider the cup, the cup of God's wrath, Jesus praying this way, what it should be obvious to us as we consider what Jesus, uh, what caused Jesus to shrink back in horror. It was not the imminent arrest. It was not the betrayal by a friend which imminent arrest would cause anxiety or anguish for any one of us. We would imagine that. You're going to be arrested. Or the betrayal by a friend. That hurts. The stabbing in the back. It's like the the hug with the knife, right? Oh, the the nice hug one time and with the knife. Right in the back and then turn it. It was not only the horrific torture he was about to endure. It was, it was that the cup of the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him. And for the first time ever, the fellowship he had with the Father was going to be cut off. The father would slam the door on his son as the son became sin for us on that cross. This is why the sweating of the drops of blood. Consider Frederick Leahy in the cross he bore. He says this, The cup placed in Christ's hands by the father induced a heaviness and dread he had not previously known. And his sinless humanity shrank back from the horror of that cup. In the Old Testament, the term cup frequently refers to God's punishment of sin. He says, J.A. Mortar, who translates the goblet of the cup of trembling, a doubtless emphasis sees in this verse a picture of being hopelessly 
irretrievably under the wrath of God. The Savior knew his Old Testament, and now he was profoundly aware of the nature of that cup that he had been given, and so he prayed with the most intensity as he was standing and then falling down and up again and then falling down, sweating as drops of blood, agonizing in anguish, if possible, let this pass from me, yet not my will, your will be done. Agonizingly, he entreated the Father, first on his knees and then prostrate on the ground that this awful cup would be removed. Also, we find, then in this time, Luke tells us this in chapter 22, verse 43, 44. No need to go there, but you can write it down. That he was strengthened by an angel from heaven. Now, this shouldn't be strange to us, considering angels are mentioned many other places in Luke. So it should not be austere that one would appear here especially considering the horror that was taking place and what the Son of God was going through. Sinless, but in his humanity. Some scholars say when, when Luke says something that was strange or like sweating like drops of blood, it's not something that was strange. Some people think, or something that we would say was, is strange, would be sweating like drops of blood. Some scholars say it, was, it merely looked like blood. I beg to differ. Others say it was uh, what is called hematridosis, actual sweating of blood. A rare condition triggered by stress. The capillaries break and the sweat would be blood. A rare condition. But we consider, had any other man gone through what Jesus, the God-man, was, was going through here? Getting ready, preparing for the wrath of God to be poured out on him. Surely the Lord was sweating drops of blood as he was in anguish, as he was sorrowful to the point of death, the scripture says. As he had a self denying disposition, not a self-seeking disposition. Third point, prayer, not pragmatism. Prayer, not pragmatism. We see with Jesus an unwavering submission and obedience. Christ not once faltered in his submission to the Father, nor in his obedience to do the Father's will. There was a total and complete unwavering. There was no doubt in the Savior's mind. Love and justice are perfect and perfected, and there's a perfect balance in Gethsemane. Jesus did pray, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We shouldn't have a problem with that. We ask God that all the time. 
God, would you please just allow this or, or please help in this way, but not my will, but, but yours be done. This was a place with, with Jesus we cannot comprehend. We can only uh, scratch the surface of, of lonely struggle, of intense anguish. As the Savior suffered in the garden, as Hebrews says, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Falling down to the ground to pray, prostrate on the ground to pray, rather than standing as was custom. His soul very sorrowful even to death. As Jesus was submitted to the Father in prayer and praying, and as he asked his disciples to pray, what were the disciples doing? They were sleeping. Emotionally exhausted, no doubt about it. But what does Luke tell us? I didn't write it down. I wrote down the... I'll just read it. 22... No need to turn there, 45, 46, unless I did read it already. No, when he rose, or 44, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So this is something that was observable. Something that could be seen. When he rose from prayer... When you can't rise up if you're standing up. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow, from sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As Jesus was submitted to the Father in prayer. The disciples were asleep. And they failed at praying even when he told them to keep on praying. Isn't that what we are to do as Christians when we don't know what to do? There's this older lady, an evangelist, and... Uh, Sweet old lady, fiery evangelist. She says, we don't pray for nothing. We don't pray for nothing. So as Christians, we don't say, oh, I don't know what to do. Maybe I should pray. No, we don't pray for nothing. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Continue praying and keep praying. Does not God hear our prayers? Yes, indeed, he does. Keep praying. Job lost it all. What did he do? Did he go file a complaint? Did he say, woe is me, now I'm going to have to rebuild all of this stuff? No, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Does that mean the rocks don't hurt? Yes, they do. Does that mean pain doesn't come? Yes, it does. When Asaph had to face the day of trouble, he called upon the name of the Lord. Hezekiah, when attacked, he laid out his prayers before the Lord. 
Jehoshaphat, O Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That sounds kind of like my prayers at times. I don't know what to do, but my, my eyes need to be on you, O Lord. That sounds more accurate for me. Maybe some of you. James asked the question, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Take this and apply it to every dark night that you may have. Can't sleep, struggling, not because too much coffee too late, but emotionally, you're frustrated, you're hurting, your, your mind's going, you're discouraged, you're, you're desperate, you're ashamed, you're afraid, pray. Pray, brother and sister, pray. When Jesus was in his worst distress, he prayed. And that's not the only time he prayed, we know. When there was the mountaintops, he was taking the time to pray. And here at the, the darkest hour that was, as it were, handed over to Satan and saying, this is your hour. What did Jesus do? He prayed. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He did not give up. He did not give in, but he prayed more. And we must do the same. Prayer, not pragmatism. I believe it was this last Wednesday night in person, we had the smallest prayer meeting we've had in a while. I don't know why that is. Hopefully that's not a sign of things to come. Spurgeon once said, Gethsemane supplies the medicine for the ills which followed upon the forbidden fruit of Eden. In other words, just as Adam's disobedience brought ruin upon all men, the obedience of the last Adam, which is Christ, was essential to save some men. This is your hour, the power of darkness. Some we could argue, well, that was given to the men. Well, who's ruling the men and who's overseeing them and who's causing all this evil? It's Satan. So the hour was really his. Handed over, so to speak. God fully in control, we understand that. Yes, sovereign. All his purposes will come to pass. Consider one more time Frederick Leahy, across he bore. He says, in all of time, this hour was especially his. Speaking of the, the devil. Think of what he did to Job and think of here. The darkness of which Christ spoke was the darkness of evil and of the prince of darkness. In this dreaded hour, Satan had free reign. In the case of Job, God set a limit to Satan's activity. In the experience of Christ, there were no limits to Satan's onslaught. He was free to do his worst, and he did, end quote. And I would add to that, of course, under God's sovereignty and God's control. Who was it? Luther who said, uh, the devil is God's devil, I think it was. So as far as the devil is concerned, he took down the first Adam. Now, how about the second Adam? This is his hour. But we know ultimately it would be Christ's hour. Prayer, not pragmatism. 
And then fourthly, there's two cups, poison or purification. Poison or purification. Indeed, it was Christ's hour as he was in much distress, as he faced it, the approaching physical suffering and the death he was about to, uh, that was about to happen must have been in his mind. Yet what he was facing is much more than we could comprehend. He was facing the humiliating and excruciating suffering that his death and only his death would bring. He would suffer for sins and he would bear God's wrath. J.C. Ryle says, how can we account for the deep agony which our Lord underwent in the garden? What reason can we assign for the intense suffering, both mental and bodily, which he manifestly endured? There is only one satisfactory answer. It was caused by the burden of a world's imputed sin. could ask the question, why does sin bring so much suffering? One answer is because sin deserves so much judgment. The cup that Jesus was ordained to drink was the bitter cup of the wrath of God. Where he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf. The horror and anguish our Savior endured in the garden while sweating drops of blood was knowing the kind of death that he would or that would propitiate the wrath of God. Everyone in here deserves to drink of that cup rather than Jesus drinking the cup for us. You disagree? Well, the Bible disagrees with you. The Bible describes who we are as by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Still not convinced? Paul says, through the law came the knowledge of sin. If he were to ask, what what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not known sin but by the law, for I would not known that coveting about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. James says about the law of God. When I say the law of God, I'm referring to the Ten Commandments. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. 
So if you say, I'm not a murderer, yes, you are. You're a murderer at heart because you've been angry with someone without just cause. You say, I've never blasphemed. I never used God's name in vain. Have you broken another of his commandments? Have you been angry with someone without just cause? Have you, have you ever told a lie? The scripture is clear. All liars will have their part in a lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. You ever stolen anything? You're a thief. If you have not repented and trusted Christ, you will face God as a lying, thieving, murderer at heart. And we've only covered three of the commandments. And James says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also says, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So we're all in here transgressors of the law of God. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And without Christ, any in here without Christ, you're a lawbreaker damned to hell. And since God crushed his son on the cross for sin, do you really think you're going to get a pass? We consider what Jesus suffered in the garden and then what he suffered on the cross. And God did this to his son. If you die without Christ, you will drink of that cup of wrath for eternity and it will be poured out upon you. Yet there is another cup, the cup of salvation. This is the cup mentioned in Psalm 116, verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. This is the cup. There is a cup of, a, excuse me, there is the cup of God's wrath and there is the cup of God's salvation. Every person who has ever lived including everyone here today, will drink from one of them. The cup of salvation offered to all who would drink by the grace of God. And the cup of salvation can only be offered because Jesus, the Son of God, drank that cup of wrath in your place. So that we didn't have to. He drank the poison as it were. So that we could drink of the purification. Because he is pure and he is righteous. And when we're justified by faith alone, we are declared righteous in God's eyes. The cup of God's wrath or the cup of God's salvation. Everyone in here this morning, you must, if you do not know Christ, you must decide now. Today is the day of salvation. The cup of God's grace and salvation and kindness and mercy received by one repenting from their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. That's the cup of purification. The question is for everyone in here, 
which cup are you drinking from? I'm going to pray as we consider these things, and then I will call up the individuals who are going to become members. Consider the points. Faithfulness, faithfulness not foolishness. Self-denying, not self-seeking. Being a person of prayer, not pragmatic. And the two cups, one of poison or one of purification. Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, I'm reminded of the hymn now, even that you walked in the garden alone. As those who were there with, with the Lord were sleeping. And it was Jesus who was in anguish. And it was Jesus who was praying to the Father. Your will be done. God, what can we take away from that? What do we need to learn from that? Impress these things upon our mind as we could study this for weeks and months. And we ought to continue to come back to this chapter in our lives as we walk with you. Oh Lord, let us consider these things today as the pianist would play for a time for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.